read the whole chapter last time, I think what we're going to do is we're going to pray and we'll just get right into it and as we have a lot of verses to cover this morning. God and Father, we humbly ask for your help as we turn to you now through your living word. For we recognize, Father, our great need of the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes in order that we would see what you would want us to see, to strengthen our minds, in order that we would believe as you would want us to believe, and to touch my tongue so that I might speak as you would want me to speak. It is you alone who can accomplish these things. Therefore, Father, it is to you alone we now look for our help. And we pray this in Christ's name. Make much of the cross and of your Son now. Amen. Well, the history of the people of God, whether it was in the temple in the Old Covenant or the church, the body of Jesus Christ in the New The history of the people of God is inseparable from the history of the evil one's attempts to destroy her. And while it's very true that in the context of a church, these attempts most often come from within, for example, through heresies, uh, self-styled prophets, through man-pleasers and dividers, all who care nothing about what God wants, but care only for what men want and so what they want. While that is true, Satan's attacks also will come from outside. And in the case of Daniel chapter 8, outside the temple. And one of the things which I really, really want you to see is his attacks which come from the outside to disrupt what's taking place inside are always essentially the same throughout history. 586 B.C., 167 B.C., and to an extent 70 A.D., and on and on. These three times, however, when the temple of God in Jerusalem was attacked, each time, the same exact pattern. Satan puts forward a mere man who says he either is God or he says um, he's acting on behalf of God. And so understanding himself as either deity or driven by deity, this anti-God or if you would, this anti-Christ type person will rob the temple of its sacred valuables. He would empty the temple of all its worshipers. He would defile the temple by his actions, put an end to the daily sacrifice, which did what? Loved ones, I want you to think with me. What did that do? Well, when the daily sacrifices, a sign of God's grace and a picture of future grace and the full grace in Christ Jesus, when it was taken away, it took away the God-ordained means in the Old Covenant where sin could be atoned for and thus forgiveness could be received so that reconciliation with God could take place, which reminded the people again and again the need of sacrifice, the shedding of blood, not their own, but as God prescribed, if they were to enjoy fellowship with God, which their sin had ruined. Fellowship whether in the Old or New Covenant, fellowship with God always involved a sacrifice. Because you see, just as the heart of the Christian spiritual life runs through the cross, how could it not? And runs through the local church because the local church is a visible expression of Jesus Christ's victory on the Christ. It's a visible expression of our union with Christ 
and what he's accomplished on the cross. Just as that's true, the heart of the spiritual life in the Old Covenant, it ran right through and to the temple. And the temple was what? The visible expression of the dwelling place of God. God was there. That's how they understood it. Hence the attacks of the evil one on the temple. So I want you to see that anything or anyone which would halt the worship of God, devalue or ignore the sacrifice of Christ, and and so the progress of the gospel, the gospel which we sang about this morning, which declares sin has to be atoned for, and there's no way any of us are ever going to be able to do that. Thus, we need God to act, and God has acted in the person of Christ. He's our only hope, and anything which hinders that truth, no matter, no matter how religious it might seem or how nice it might seem, anything which would hinder that truth is anti-Christ, anti-God. And so we said, what God is doing in cha- chapter 8, and especially in the latter part, is that in his goodness and his grace, he's giving Daniel a vision which is going to forewarn his people about a period of time of severe persecution, which now we know involves the temple, And to promise them that their sovereign God, he's going to restrict the days of persecution and he's going to destroy the persecutor. And what is true for them has been true for every Christian movement that has suffered in this way. It's true for us by dent of principle. And so we need to be mindful of this. Now, if your Bible is open, as God gave Daniel a glimpse of future empires warring against each other, remember in the ram, that's verse 20, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the goat, verse 21, Greece. And by the way, my daughter at the end of the second service last week, she immediately told me that goat on social media stands for greatest of all time. And I thought that's pretty appropriate because Alexander, I'm sure he thought of himself as the greatest of all time, but now he's dead. But now God in verse 9 is, as we key in on the horn, he takes Daniel to the ultimate conflict which lies. This is important. This is the ultimate conflict which lies beneath every human conflict. Now again, understand this. The root of every human conflict, I don't care if it's national or it's personal, is the pride-filled rebellion of men and women against the God who rules and reigns. In other words, this conflict between humanity and divinity is a conflict that takes place every day. It's a conflict that took place right in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And actually, it took place also when and where? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's the great choice. Either my will, Jesus said, or God's will. So again, this this is evil. It takes place every day in the lives of all of us and everyone. And of course, humanity and our rebellion against God, we give in to these temptations of the evil one and we defy God. And verse 12, God's truth is thrown to the ground which happens every time we sin, doesn't it? Isn't that the case? Every time we sin and say yes to ourselves and no to God, truth is thrown to the ground. Now, this is exactly what is happening, if you would, in massive scale in this little horn. And you'll see this in your Bible if it's open. Takes us right to our first point, hostility of the little horn. Again, all aimed at God. Everything that this horn warns, wars against has to do with God. Verse 9b, the place of God. Verse 10, the people of God. Verse 11, the person of God. Verse 11b, verse 12, the temple of God and His Word. So we said last time, 
Um, this little horn, we were pretty sure, was Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to power beginning in Syria in 175 B.C. And for political and personal reasons, immediately after being defeated in Egypt by Rome, soundly, heads back east of Egypt and to, verse 9, the beautiful land, which Ezekiel chapter 12, 20, excuse me, tells us is the place where the people of God dwell because that's the place where God dwells. Now remember, the language here is poetic and it's symbolic. So of course we know that God is everywhere. And we know God's people lived in other places at other times at this time as well. But we also know from the Old Testament that three times a year, a male Israelite who who usually took their families with were to appear before God in his temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because they understood at that time, that's where God dwells. That temple in Jerusalem, the beautiful land, that's where God dwells. Hence, the hostility directed towards the place of God by this horn. Okay, then verse 10, the people of God as well. Verse 10, it, the horn, grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. And again, remember this language is symbolic as God's people are often identified in the Old and New Testament as stars. By God himself, Genesis 15, Genesis uh, 22, your offspring, Abraham, will be like the stars. Paul and Philippians, do everything without grumbling and complaining so you'll shine like the stars. Daniel 12, those resurrected, if you would, stars. And what history tells us then is that Antiochus Epiphanes, after being so put out about his defeat in Egypt, just rains fire in God's people. Now, he was already ruling over them, but his rule now becomes more ruthless. So he goes back, gets wind of a rebellion that is taking place. He then sets himself toward the murder of tens of thousands of stars, citizens in Jerusalem. In fact, in a three-day span, 40,000 Jews were killed. I mean, that's the equivalent roughly of almost half the population of Duluth. Gone in three days. Hostility. Hostility towards the place of God, the beautiful land, towards the people of God. And now, verse 11a, his hostility is directed towards the person of God. So, so nothing is beyond his limit. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, which is a reference to God himself, which simply means that Antiochus gave himself an upgrade. And again, history tells us a few years into his reign, he added another word to his name. So Antiochus Epiphanes changed to Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious God. However, he didn't stop there because they never do. He had a coin mended which had the name Theos Epiphanes, translated God manifested. In other words, God seen. And again, this is a foretaste of the Antichrist. When you see him, he says, you see God. Right? I, I just, I, I was just thinking, how would he, he was a strutter. He had to be. Walking down the street, if you see me, you see Zeus. Right? Because it wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he was talking about. He was talking about Zeus. So he would say, if you want to know how spectacular Zeus is, look at me. 
That is a human problem. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Follow me. Listen to me. It's a human problem. It's our children. It's their parents. Verse 11. The prince of hosts, God, was challenged by a mere man. And here we go again. No creativity at all by the evil one. It happened right in the beginning in original sin. You will be like God. And man was duped. Hostility towards the place of God, towards the people of God, hostility towards the person of God. Finally, verse 11b and 12, hostility towards the temple of God and his word. Here we are again. If you see your Bible, 11b, it took the daily sacrifices from him and the place of the sanctuary was brought low. And once again, the trustworthiness of the Bible is seen. This is told hundreds of years before it happens. History tells us that Antiochus goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He robs the temple of its sacred treasures. He banned the Jews from carrying out their worship. He put an end to the daily sacrifice. And he had a statue of Zeus put in the temple of God. And he had it put in right next to the place where they did their morning and evening sacrifices. And to top that off, verse 11b, this sacred place... He brought in a pig, something which God forbid, to have it sacrificed on the altar of God. And in the mind of the Jew, who knew their Torah, how could it be any worse? Because this was Antiochus saying to God's people, this is what your God means to me, and this is what this place means to me. Now again, this is evil. But this happens all the time in the world that we live in. Jesus is mocked in the arts. He's mocked in comedy. Jesus is scorned in science, scorned in law. Jesus is devalued in the public square. People don't say much about him these days. And Jesus is even ignored in public worship. This is what he means to me. Not much. And many of us would weep because of this. This is God's one and only son. This is the pathway to eternal life. He's the only reason why I can commune with God, know fellowship with God, have peace with God, be reconciled with God. The only reason why I'll be with God in heaven. And he's blasphemed. He's ignored. He's put on a shelf. He reduced to second place. Now, if you know anything about the Maccabean Rebellion, which was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. He was called the hammer, like a professional wrestler anyway. You'll know that in the book of Maccabees, first and second book, and by the way, the book of Maccabees is not in the Protestant Bible. It is in the Catholic Bible. Protestants, we say that it's good history, but it's probably not divinity. Anyway, this whole scene, which is described in these verses, was named the abomination of desolation. And that's a phrase that Jesus actually uses in the gospel of Mark. Which leads us now to verse 12, which for some people cause a bit of a problem in translation. So it reads, because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. So this is what people ask. Whose rebellion? Is it Antiochus's rebellion or the people of God? Well, I'm going to suggest to you it's the rebellion of the people of God because of the Bible, and because of history. So yes, God's people were suffering horribly, but the Bible and history tells us this wasn't arbitrary. 
for this reason. In the Old Covenant, namely the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God taught his people, if you disobey my law and if you go your own way, your disobedience will do two things. One, your disobedience will bring you into bondage. Two, your disobedience will bring you into captivity. Indeed, Leviticus 26, 17. God, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And it happened, didn't it? It happened, for example, we learned in the first chapter of Daniel. God used Nebuchadnezzar to do his beating and bidding on his people. Now here in this part of the vision, the exile is over. God's people are back in God's place in Jerusalem. But they're still under the old covenant. And in that circumstance, they were becoming more and more worldly. Their worship, history says, was half-hearted. Many of them were barely making it to temple worship at all. So none of the required sacrifices that they needed, to, they needed to do weren't being done. And they began to take on the way of the life of the Greeks. So they began to do what they did and they began to go where they went. And they began to think like they thought. And the temple began to be reduced in their minds of many of the Jewish people. So in comes Antiochus. Just as Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, you'll see that by God's power. And the people have a choice. This is the choice. Either I'm going to go with Antiochus Epiphanes and do what he says to do, or I'm going to say to him, no, and I'm going to hold to God, and I'm going to hold to God's law, and I'm going to die. (laughs) Either I will take hold of God's law and obey God's word and die, or I'm going to hold to these new words from Antiochus and live. Now again, this is evil. How often is this same exact scene played out in the history of God's people and has played out in the history of the church? You know this. Which one? God or man? Is it going to be Caesar? Is he Lord? Or Christ? Is he Lord? If you choose Christ, you're done. But only in this life. If you choose man, if you choose Caesar, oh, you'll live. But if you stay on that line, you'll be done. Unless you change your choice and you choose Christ, then you're done again, but only in this life. And so once again, history tells us a large number of Jews in the 167 BC era, they say no to God. They say things like, you know, this isn't really worth it. Life seems pretty good right now with all this temple stuff and without the sacrifice and everything. I'm going to go with Antiochus. And they did. And they broke the law. And they broke the covenant. And they turned from their God, hence the bondage. Hence the captivity cut off, as it were, by their own choice from God. As Antiochus goes into the temple and just shuts it all down. Verse 12, there it is again. Truth was thrown to the ground. And by the way, that word ground literally means dust, ash, dirt. Because history tells us Antiochus goes into the temple took the scrolls of the Torah, the sacred scrolls, he cuts them up, burns them up, and they throw the ashes right down to the ground. Okay, that's number one. That's hostility. Second point, clarity. So Daniel verse 13, he's overheard two holy ones, probably angels speaking. The question is asked, which is, by the way, it's not a why question, is it? 
But it's a how question. How long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? So apparently angels don't know everything. They're having this conversation between each other. And although the two holy ones were talking to each other, you'll notice if your Bible's open that the answer goes to Daniel. They look right at Daniel, verse 14. It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, here we go again. There are many ways scholars understand this verse. Here are the two most settled on. If the number is actually referring to days, 2,300 days, according to the Jewish calendar, this would be about six years and four months, covering the entire period of Antiochus' hostility against the people of God. However, if it refers, because of the odd way that it's put, Right? There's other ways he could have said it, but it is a little odd. Evening and morning sacrifices. If it refers to that, then it would be a 1,150 days, which is around three years plus a couple of months. And this would put it right square in this time, verse 13, of the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary by Antiochus and his soldiers. Now, I kind of lean this way because of this reason. It was in 167 BC that Antiochus sets up that statue of Zeus in the temple and begins to do all those horrible things, desecrating the temple. And it was in the year 164 BC, three years later, roughly, when the temple was cleansed, verse 14, and re-consecrated. Now, that re-consecration, don't answer out loud, but I bet some of you know this, that reconsecration of the temple is the origin of what Jewish holiday? Okay, good. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> okay, what does Hanukkah mean? Okay, there. <laughs> dedication. It's the Feast of Dedication. So Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, he wins back the temple from Antiochus. And John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus himself actually celebrated this feast of dedication, otherwise known as Hanukkah, when he goes into the temple during that time. What time? Well, which is probably Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Okay, now, in verse 15, Daniel is given some, or asking for some more clarity. Now, we learned last time, verse 16, that the angel Gabriel gives the interpretation to Daniel. And so what I want you to see is that Daniel has a tremendous amount of physical problems in light of this interpretation, this vision. Verse 17b, he's terrified. He's overwhelmed. Fell face to the ground. Verse 18, more than likely, he's passed out. He's asleep, as it were. Now, we're going to speak to this more towards the end, but for now, let's just get this in our head. So he gets this vision, and he gets the interpretation. He's not all excited about it, right? He's not all glowing, saying, God spoke to me. Everybody, God spoke to me. No, he gets sick. It's hard for him to intake, which leads us to another problem which interpreters struggle with. Verse 17 the vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 19, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Here comes the question. Which end? Is this the end, the end, like the end of the age? 
or is it something else? Well, I'm going to let the reader decide. I think it's something else. And here's why. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the end, is always in reference to the end of the situation at hand. One example would be Amos chapter 8, verse 2. The end has come for the, my people Israel. Now, is that the end, the end? Of course not. It's the end of that generation as they were headed towards exile. Here, same usage. The end of this situation being revealed, verse 19, the time of wrath in the situation of the desolation of the temple. Okay, so far, so good, I hope. Gabriel showing Daniel God is going to intervene and he's going to put this horn, this antichrist type, to an end. So again, though, some say, verse 17, 19, this is the end of the age, the return of Jesus Christ, and this evil horn is actually the final antichrist. It's hard for me to see that, but still, I must tell you, some people say that. My suggestion would be this horn is definitely a type of antichrist. All the movements reveal this, but he isn't the antichrist. So this is probably, I think, a preview of the ultimate destruction of the final antichrist which is to come. Which takes us to our third point, hostility, clarity, audacity. And here in verse 23, this is important because this gives us a profile not only of how wicked this person is, but it also gives us a fact of how evil operates. If, if you would, this is the modus operandi, the methodology, the strategy of the kingdom of evil. In other words, this helps us understand evil. And I have to say this because we'll struggle with evil until our last breath, even the evil that works in us. So we need to know this. Verse 23, there is insolence. There's a disrespect a rudeness, an unwillingness to be ruled, an audacity, an impoliteness. And I say every one of those words purposely because verse 23 says, he has a stern face, yet he's a master of intrigue. RSV says, I think, understands sinister schemes. In other words, he's very good at causing trouble when on the surface it appears like he's trying to help out. In fact, the word that's used for stern face is the same word that's used in Proverbs 7 of that loose and loud hussy. You'll forgive me, the prostitute of Proverbs 7. And so her words are loud. They're overpowering as she draws people to her. She's defiant. She won't be kept in check. And she wins men's hearts a lot. Now, how does she win them? She doesn't go, ah, what does she do? I mean, we know what she does. That's why they play the saxophone music in the movies. We know what's going to happen when the saxophone music starts to play. When we were kids, or the kids were kids, we used to turn the TV off and the saxophone movie would come on. Just kind of hope we got it right. But we understand that, right? It's not, eh, it's what? Yeah. Defiant, but tricky with it. Won't be kept in check. But tricky, loose lips, brazen, but tricky, audacious, but not for the good. That's evil. Create trouble because they like trouble. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. His God-given ability to reason and plan is so twisted, talking about the little horn, that he finds stimulation and pleasure in doing evil, stirring trouble. It's often assumed that we do evil against our better judgment. That is not the case with this horn. It has called evil good and finds attractive what is offensive 
to God. That's a great sentence, isn't it? Finds attractive what is offensive to God. Okay, but listen to this mystery. Verse 24. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Bear with me. Verse 25. How strong deceit will prosper. Call evil good, and everybody believe it. What does Thomas Merton say? A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong, which is wrong, gives it a superficial appearance of being right. That's him. Verse 25, he'll consider himself superior, a delusions of grandeur, right? Self-deification. There's no way I can be wrong. So when he's feeling it, others will feel his fury. But here's the mystery. Verse 24, he will become very great, very strong, but not by his own power. Okay, question, whose power? Whose power? Mystery. Sinclair Ferguson. Even for the breath it breathes to sin against God. It is dependent on the one, on God, whom it sins against. We can never escape that we're created, that we're dependent beings, meaning there's no such thing as human autonomy, no such thing as self-sufficiency. Now, loved ones, that's the mystery, isn't it? Man, woman cannot defy God unless God gives them the strength to do so. I mean, go home and sit on that one for a while. We cannot defy God unless God gives us the very strength to do so. I don't know this to be true, but I suspect that's one of the reasons why people who are persecuted, that's why they can love their persecutors because they know that God has a good plan in the midst of all this wicked evil. So we can take heart, can't we? God is over all this and evil will always inevitably overstep its bounds. You know, and I've been a pastor a long time and I've seen that again and again. Evil will always overstep its bounds. Antiochus dies of mysterious disease. Verse 25b, not by human power. So there's no intrigue. There's no group of people getting together and trying to poison him. History says, we don't know why he died, but he just died. Not by human power. And at the back of all that is the audacity of the evil one himself. Right? Just like in the garden. Same old tune. The same old tune. You don't need to pay attention to all this God stuff. I mean, he'll ruin you. You know, if God really loved you, he would help you do whatever you wanted to do, right? If he really loved you, everything you needed, he would give you so you could do everything you wanted to do. That's the evil one. And that is where so much of our sadness lies. So much of our despondency lies because we can't do what we think we should be doing. We can't have what we want. And that's the lie that we're fed. We know best. What's the song? Freedom, right? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. But then we open our Bibles and God says, Loved ones, this is the way. This far you shall go and no more. These are your limits. Because the freedom to do as we please is what ruined us in the first place. Whether it's us, us, or we take it right back to the Garden of Eden. Final point. Humility. And so verse 26 makes great sense, doesn't it? He's told Daniel to seal the vision up, not for secrecy, but for safeguarding, because this is important information. It's just not for that generation, if you would. The latter part of the vision will take place 400 years from Daniel's day, and God's people will need to know what God says. God speaks wonderfully through his word. Hence, these instructions are sealed up. And verse 27, again, we find humility. 
A humility which sets Daniel apart. Knowing that all these things will be far, far into the future, long after he's dead, Daniel did not respond unconcerned. He's hurting for a people who he'll never know on earth. So, so again, the seeing the future is not thrilling for Daniel. I mean, that's so much our time, right? It makes him sick, ill, and it devastates him. So to know on some level the future, according to the Bible, doesn't make him feel special, doesn't make him feel excited, doesn't make him say, I know all the answers. No, but it brings him into the realm of divine sorrow and the face of wickedness. And he has compassion for people who he knows are going to experience a lot of death and a lot of evil. And many people are going to be duped by this evil. In fact, you know, I never understand when people say, well, we're going to be in heaven and you'll be down on earth, however the, the end comes, however it, it's unfold. I've never understood people saying that. Like we're happy because we're there and the people here and they're suffering. So Daniel, given every bit of insight that he has, he doesn't say, ha ha, we win. Or he doesn't say, hey everybody, guess what happened to me? God spoke to me in a vision. You'll be hearing about it in the news pretty soon. Now what does he do? It puts him on the floor. It puts him to his bed. He's sick about the whole thing. When he gets better, final verse, it brings him back to his duty. Then I got up, Daniel says, and I went about the king's business. In other words, back to life, as the song says, back to reality. Here's our application. How do we live knowing these things? Because Monday's going to come, right? We're going to, most of us might watch the big game tonight, but Monday's going to be there. How do we live? Well, we live knowing that God has set us where we live. God has given us our work. God has set us in our place and he's given us our space in order that we can go back to king's business. Isn't that the case? We know the reality. We know the king is coming. But we still got to do our routines. We still, still got to go back to work and all that life stuff. So Daniel has to go back and serve a miserable wicked king, King Belshazzar. But that's where God put him. And where you are and where I am, this is where God put us. And so we go back to our business knowing that the activity of the evil one, okay, we, this is what we know for sure now, the activity of the evil one will always lay to bear on at least three things. Verse 11, he takes away the daily sacrifice. Well, okay, we don't have daily sacrifices anymore. We understand that, right? But this is what we do know. Sacrifice is necessary for fellowship with God. That's always been the case. That's why these guys always headed to the temple in the old covenant. Let's just get rid of that stuff. So what does the devil do now? Well, he implies that the sacrifice of Jesus isn't that big of a deal. You know, if I have to sing one more song about the gospel, no. Truth be told, our whole eternal destiny, our standing with God, our peace with God, reconciliation with God, rest on the work of Christ on the cross. So the evil one is just fine with a Christless, crossless Christianity right? He'll put you to work double time. Just don't say anything about the cross. Just don't rely on the cross. Just don't mention the cross. Run from a crossless, Christless Christianity. Run from a line of thinking that doesn't take you again and again to the cross. 
the evil one would untie you to this. And also, verse 11, he would destroy the temple. Well, we don't have a temple like that anymore. I understand that. But our bodies are a temple. And 1 Peter tells us that our bodies together are the temple of God, right? We're being built up to a holy house, if you would. And so what does the evil one do? Let's just destroy the church. Bad doctrine, antichrist people, lethargic obedience, crossless, Christless Christianity. Let's, let's dumb down church stuff. Let's just get, you know, you don't want to be crazy. Let's dumb it down because it's not really that important. And then the final thing he does is he casts truth to the ground. Now, this is, this is what I think. This is just me. In our context in the West, I think the evil one would come to us and he would say something like this. Look, it's okay if Christ isn't first in your life. Just make him a really, 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 really close second. And that'll do That'll do. But what happens? We open up our Bible. We think things through. And what do we say to ourselves? We say, that will not do. That will not do. It never has. It never has. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for the Bible. Do we ever thank you for the Bible, Father? Thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings truth to bear in our hearts and our minds, who opens up the text to us in a way we could never get it on our own. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his cross, the sufficiency of the cross. How beautiful it is to know that though we rebel against you every day in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are spotless, we're clean, and in the eyes of the one who matters most, our Lord Father, we are unblemished simply because of the work of Christ on the cross. So we praise you, Jesus, for your perfect obedience. And we humbly thank you that you applied that obedience to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.